When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this special edition of the Clark Howard Show. You know, our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. I say special edition because I need to talk about how the war in Ukraine is affecting us all with higher energy prices of all types. And so I have so much to say about this. I'm splitting it into two parts. The first is going to be about gasoline prices, which is something that people notice right away. Because if you think about the things you buy, it's the one you notice as you drive down the road. You see those signs, right? And so if you're if you're like me and you obsess with what it is 0.9, you know, for a gallon of gas, you've seen a brutal rise in that price. And there's a second energy factor that we don't notice right away. And that's what happens with the energy to power our home or our business. And I'm going to talk about both of those things in this podcast. But I want to start with gasoline. So first things first, we've had a run-up in gasoline prices that was somewhat gradual if you think about how rapid it's been just since the war in Ukraine started, but it had been a gradual increase over a two-year period. After the oil markets collapsed, even went negative at one point in 20, in the early phase of the pandemic, when the whole world, it seemed, was on lockdown and driving fell off a cliff for all purposes. And so no one wanted the oil the stories were about how every oil tanker in the world was full of oil with nowhere to take it. The people who were producing oil had nobody who wanted to buy it, and they were having to at one time pay people to take that oil from them. That's how crazy it got in the oil industry. Well, that cycle is what led to the much higher prices that we had pre Ukrainian war. It's because a lot of oil production stopped. Oil was capped and only now is production getting back to where it was. Ironically enough, in 21, even with the decline in production capability in the United States because of what happened with COVID in 20, the United States was a net exporter of energy in 21. We are a powerhouse in the world in energy production. And so 
we are, for us in the U.S., is an overall economy. This is why economics is such a dismal science. The fact that we produce more energy than we use means the higher prices have benefit to the overall economy, even as it hurts the economy of us as individuals. Or let's say you're a owner of a service business and you're in your company truck all day long and those trucks don't get good fuel economy. And every time you pull in to buy fuel, maybe it's another $100 or more to fill up that vehicle. And so for you, this is a brutal cost. Every extra dollar you're paying for that gasoline for that work truck is one less dollar profit you're making in your business. As a consumer, as you go to fill up your vehicle right now with the higher prices, every single dollar extra you're having to pay for gasoline is a dollar you don't have to spend on food or eating out or entertainment, going to shop, whatever it is. Retailers are actually terrified of this, by the way, that people are going to have less money to shop and that retail sales will decline because of the higher energy prices. Well, we already were on this trend line and then Russia invades Ukraine. And when Russia invaded Ukraine, the energy markets went crazy because war, once it starts, has such an uncertain path. I mean, come on, let's face it. Not anybody in the world could have imagined that Ukraine would have stood up to this behemoth bully, Vladimir Putin's military, like they have done. I mean, what courage has been shown by individuals and by the president of Ukraine. It's unbelievable what Zelensky, who was always looked at as a lightweight. Why was he looked at as a lightweight? Because he was a comedian prior to becoming president. And people may enjoy being entertained by comedians, but they never are taken seriously outside of their craft. And this guy has shown more courage in the face of what could be certain death for him. It's amazing. But once war started, oil markets went berserk. And so prices climbed very quickly. Well, now the price of a barrel of oil has come way back down. But what you and I are paying for gasoline is still way up. I've run the numbers and I've used various industry formulas. And it looks like right now we're paying from $1.07 a gallon to $1.15 a gallon more then the price of a barrel of oil should indicate we're having to pay at retail. Now, why that's happened, the conspiracy theorists would say the big oil companies are taking advantage. And there's no proof of that. Could be, but there's no proof of that. But the uncertainty in the marketplace changed the psychology and the prices went way up. The reality is, Based on the price of a barrel of oil, you should be paying at least $1 less per gallon when you go fill up. And if the price of a barrel of oil stays where it is today, 
what will happen is even though the oil prices all zoomed up in a two-week period, the decline will usually take eight times longer. Four months is how long it'll usually take. So for every week that you have a run-up in prices, it tends to take quite a bit longer for those prices to come back down eight times as long. And it's because when a company is able to push prices up, they go up rapidly, but they come back down only grudgingly. Uh, We do have a factor in the marketplace, though, that benefits you even right now. The major oil companies no longer control the retailing of gasoline in the United States. They have their company-owned stations, and little-known dirty thing is the oil companies set the price at every station they own in the U.S. So they will say to the operator of the branded station, you have to post these prices for regular, for mid-grade, and premium diesel as well. And so they're in kind of like a cartel kind of thing. But so much of the gallons pumped in the United States are pumped by, first, the two national wholesale clubs and the regional one. Costco, Sam's, and BJ's Wholesale now push out an enormous number of gallons sold in the United States. And they are generally the first ones to move their prices down. The reason is they are what are known as pumpers in the industry. They sell massive amounts of gasoline. So as the wholesale price will correct and that dollar plus gap comes away, you'll see the prices go where there's a huge gap between what you're paying at the warehouse clubs to fill your vehicle versus what you'd see at an oil company-owned gas station. Second, not everywhere in the country, but in much of the country, particularly in the south, southwest, and the heart of the country, the heartland, the midsection of the country, we have large independent sellers of gasoline. Uh, Some of the brand names of those are Sheets, Wawa, Quick Trip, Racetrack. There's two different Quick Trips in the country. Competitors spell it differently. And these people buy gas independently. They have huge fueling operations. And their prices much more trend like the warehouse club prices than they do with what the majors are doing at their stations. So even today, if you use Gas Buddy or Gas Price Watch, you'll notice in a metro area that the price gap from the most expensive station to the cheapest will be more than a dollar a gallon. Now, I saw a gap yesterday. I drove around and I was recording prices because I have nothing better to do with my life. And I drive an electric vehicle, so I didn't have to worry about what it was going to cost me to fuel my car. But anyway, the price gap from the most expensive station I saw to the cheapest was $1.65. And I didn't cover a large geographic area, and the difference was a buck sixty-five. So you don't wait till you're on fumes 
to look for gasoline, especially at a time like this. Now, I want to talk on a future podcast about the long-term play we have in the United States that we're not taking advantage of right now. 4% of the vehicles being sold in the U.S. right now are electric. In Europe and parts of Asia, it's 20% of the vehicles being sold. As we migrate our fleet over time from gasoline to electric, you have much more control over the price you're going to pay, and we don't have to worry about us relying on what's known as a monoline, a single kind of fuel to fuel vehicles versus what you have with electric where the power can come from so many different sources. But that is for a future day. Right now, we got to worry about the cost of filling our vehicles at this moment. And I should say one other thing on this. The wholesale price of a barrel of oil could go much higher from where it is even at these rates that it's fallen to, depending on what happens in Europe. It's unpredictable at this moment what's going to happen with not just Ukraine, but other countries that Putin apparently has his eyes on as he's looking to be some kind of um, emperor from the Middle Ages, but with very modern weapons. And so it's hard to know how this does play out, whether we're going to end up with boots on the ground or anything like that. This is a potentially volatile situation, and I hope that the most we have to worry about are the pricing pressures from war and that we don't end up in something that involves the shedding of much more blood and much more destruction. And with that happy thought, I want to turn to questions. Let's get to this one from Mark in Minnesota. I bought I-bonds near the end of October 2021 when the rate was a little over 3%, and I knew the rate was going to be a little over 7% in November. I did this based on something I read online. I'm not still not sure if that advice was correct and if I should have waited until November. Now I want to buy I-bonds for 2022. Should I buy before April, in April, or after April? Can you explain how the interest changes from the initial purchase rate? Okay, so Mark. I-bonds, I've been trying to explain series I-savings bonds for more than a generation. And as I explain them, I get better at it because what I do is, like somebody on the staff will ask a question about how these things work, and I see their eyes start to uh, start darting. They're not listening anymore, or they're just trying to understand, eyes glazed, because um, they are so unbelievably hard to understand. So here's the best explanation I can give you. The idea of a series I savings bond is that how they're being sold today is in theory, you don't lose to inflation. It's a break even deal. If you go put your money into a credit union, online bank, regular bank, even the ones paying the highest interest out there, you're going to fall way behind inflation. So when Series I savings bonds were created more than a generation ago, you earned two types of interest. You earned 
the rate of inflation that reset every six months, and you earned a base amount. Believe it or not, I own Series I savings bonds. I don't know. Did you buy any back? I did. You did buy them Mm -hmm. back when I was a raving lunatic about them in the 1990s? I didn't buy much, but but I have them. So for 30 years, what Krista is earning and what I'm earning is a base rate that was as high as, I think, 3.6% plus the rate of inflation. The feds realized, hey, you know what? We don't need to give people that much a good deal. Now we're going to give them 0% on their money, but we will give them the rate of inflation. So every six months using um, an odd formulation for inflation, a little different than the headline inflation rate, the feds announced what the interest is that you're going to earn over the next six months. It's not interest like you think of. It's just covering inflation. So when you bought them in October, that meant you had a six-month period earning 3%, followed by a a six-month period earning 7%, and then it resets twice a year. So a lot of people heard about them when the headline was, hey, earn 7% on your money, but that was only for six months. And as long as inflation is raging, you will earn whatever that rate is that will at least keep you even, Stephen. In other words, you won't net out being any wealthier, which is what happened when Krista and I bought them more than a generation ago. But what you will do is you will at least run in place, which is better than falling behind, which is what's happening right now with savings. So I hope your eyes didn't glaze over with that because the purpose of it is you can spend up to $10,000 a year on these. Go to savingsbonds.gov and you will at least, as long as we're in this inflationary cycle, ride with it. Once you buy them, you have to own them for a minimum of a year. But if you own them only for a year, you suffer an interest penalty for early withdrawal. Kind of like if you had a CD at a bank or credit union and you took it out early. If you hold it five years or longer, you're good to go. You can pull your money out, no penalty, and you've earned 10 interest cycles. And again, because the rates reset twice a year. But you have the ability to own them for all 30 years. And so those that we bought back when they were paying a base rate plus the rate of inflation, we would be Looney Tunes to ever sell those. I'm sorry I said Looney Tunes. We had a a Clark Stink saying not to use that expression, so I apologize. Anyway, it would be a bad decision to sell those uh, before 30 years because we're getting such a great deal. For people buying them today, when inflation ultimately chills, it's really a toss-up whether you would keep them after a five-year window or sell them because, again, you're not earning a base rate right now. You're only earning the inflation rate. So I hope that explanation worked because I've tried a lot with this, and um, it is a hard concept to explain. So I, I rambled so long about that. No other questions? No. Oh, man. we got to get to home energy. All right, so we're going to talk about the other uncomfortable bill that's going to come in your mailbox, and that is 
the power bill, if you have a natural gas bill, that kind of thing. We're going to talk strategies with that straight ahead. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So you open an electric bill right now or a natural gas bill, and you probably have seen some sticker shock. Prices over the last year for power have gone up about four and a half percent, more or less. Depends on where you live in the country, how much they've gone up. And we're looking right now at in states that have monopoly power companies for pass-throughs to customers, which will be higher than that for a while moving forward because, again, the war in Ukraine. The deal is, is that we think of energy as being a local phenomenon. And yeah, if you got solar panels on your roof, that's a local phenomenon. But power pretty much is a worldwide market today. Even if you don't have transmission lines covering the globe, the world is influenced by the cost of what happens with different sources of energy. And natural gas which has become our most important fuel for electricity in the United States, more important than coal by far, uh, more important in most states than wind or solar or hydro, the cost of natural gas, because of the disruptions in supply with the war going on in Ukraine, with the outlaw Russians being one of the world's largest suppliers of natural gas, has led natural gas prices higher. Now, I want to give you an illustration. The price of natural gas, as we're talking right now, is less than a third of what it was at wholesale in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. So, yes, it is higher, but not anything like it was 17 years ago, which I guess was probably maybe an all-time peak in the modern era for natural gas prices in the United States. But the difference is when you go back to the Katrina era, natural gas was insignificant as a source of electricity. It was used for people hooked up to natural gas lines at their home, uh, typically for heating, um, hot water, uh, maybe occasionally another use at a house. The difference today is natural gas has become the fuel of choice for so many utilities for electricity. So the impact, even though the price is much lower than it was 17 years ago when it peaked, 
and actually by historical standards is not incredibly high right now, it still leads to higher prices as a lot of U.S. natural gas production is now more profitable for the producers to put on, take it to LNG terminals, liquefied natural gas, where it's frozen to like this incredibly low temperature and then it is shipped anywhere in the world on a ship. And then when it gets there, it's offloaded and warmed back up and then it goes into supply energy in other countries. And right now, we have a diversion going on in the U.S. where we're sending energy to our European allies. And it's funny, it's not something we're doing as a homeland security thing or anything like that. That's the free market, is moving those natural gas ships to where the producers get the most revenue. And that's how the marketplace works. And that's how you end up with more production. So then that's what's happening. And it will impact you on your power bill and anything you get directly from natural gas. You'll feel it more impactfully because with electricity, the cost of the fuel is only part of what your bill is because you pay for the power company infrastructure, the long lines that bring the power to you, the power lines, and then the power coming into your home and all that. So the actual fuel used to generate power is only a part of the electric bill, but it's pretty much everything for your natural gas bill if you have a separate one for that. So what's it mean for you and me? Well, if you're a long-term play in your home, it's really a valuable strategy to look at putting in solar at your house in much of the country. Even if you put in a smaller solar system, it allows you to reduce the amount of electricity you're having to buy from the power company. And people can put up a certain number of panels and then later when you can afford more, put up more because the system's already in place and it's not terrible to add panels later if you want to get started with that. But that's talking about how to produce your own power as a power plant. But the cheapest kilowatt hours you can ever produce are the ones you don't have to use. And so normally I talk about every fall, like a broken record forever, I've talked about using the upcoming winter heating season as a time for you to focus on getting your home more efficient. Because a kilowatt not used is a kilowatt you don't have to pay for. And so now here we are at a completely different time of year, but a different situation with higher prices. The value of you doing things that reduce the kilowatt demand in your house is where it's at. So putting in, if you haven't already, putting in a smart thermostat. These smart thermostats, when they first came out, were 600 bucks, and they were really pretty low IQ smart. Now you can buy smart thermostats for under $100, and they're really high IQ. They learn over time your patterns. They learn when nobody's around. The smart ones know when the house is empty. And what they do is they adjust the temperature to the ideal optimum level to reduce the 
uh, air conditioning consumption by raising the temperature, but not too high that it costs too much to cool it back down later. So that would be the first move I'd do if you still have a dumb thermostat in your house. Many, many different models. Now, it used to be a one-model game. It used to be the Nest thermostat. And now lots of competitors. Second thing is you get huge bang for your buck if you insulate the attic in your home. The payback on that is fantastic. The next thing is something that's normally a winter kind of thing, but that's to properly caulk doors and windows. And those are the three cheapest things you can do, unless you consider doors and windows to be two things, which would be four things. Those things are where you take some control. Now, I talked before, and it generated a lot of comments about before I met my wife, where I kept the thermostat in my home in winter and in summer, and I'm an outlier with that because I keep the thermostat really um, where it's hot, hot in the summer and cold, cold in the winter. Uh, And that's just what I do because, well, that's what I did. (laughs) My wife won't put up with that. But most people aren't going to do that. They're not going to, when they're in a home, deal with being uncomfortable. So that's why you do things that lower the cost of the bills. And I should add one other thing. In states like uh, Texas, New York, trying to think what other states, where there's a competitive market for power, so at least two of the nation's largest states have competitive markets for power, you can go shop your power business for your home or your business with a variety of retailers, for lack of a better term, to get and lock in a lower cost on your energy. In many more states, you can do that with natural gas where you can lock in. But uh, the Texas market, as I've said for years, in spite of the disastrous and tragic loss of life uh, two winters ago, that Texas is so much further along than the rest of the country with the right way of selling energy in the United States as a free market way to do it. And I hope that ultimately for our nation's well-being, we will move to the Texas free market system for energy that sadly is the exception rather than the rule in the United States. And let's just say you didn't just keep it cold. 55 is the number Well, I didn't want to throw the numbers out because, see, my credibility goes even lower. I mean, that's crazy to me. 55? So so during the day, I would keep the thermostat in the summer between 78 and 82, and in the winter at 55. And you just wear, um, I mean, think about how many people through human history wore layers indoors because they didn't have any of the stuff. Because they had to. And so um, being so into saving money, I did that. But uh, to my wife's credit, Lane put her foot down and said, I'm not living this Yeah, way. I don't blame her. 
All right, we'll go to some questions now. Ellen in California says she lives in California where there are earthquakes. I'm wondering if it's a good idea to keep a checking account in more than one bank just in case one isn't available during the aftermath of the earthquake or other disaster. And if the answer is yes, do you have any advice about which banks would be better to have an account in? So uh, this is a very interesting question. And you mentioned natural disaster. Um, After the September 11th terrorist attacks, Financial institutions, brokerages, uh, money managers, and the rest were required by, I forget the name of the statute now because that was so long ago, but they were required to have backup systems and geographical locations where in the event of a man-made disaster or a natural one, that they would still have capabilities. Now, you bring up a very valid point not having all your eggs in one basket. And the the other reason to do so is with the hacking problems that go on in the world now and state actors that will try to disrupt societies uh, like the North Koreans, obviously the Russians have done this for a long time, the Iranians, and then private bad actors who are just trying to steal money. There's an advantage to having money in more than one financial institution, if there was a catastrophic hack of an institution where you have everything, there's an advantage in having a second account where you have access to money. And what I recommend, Alan, for this second account is that it always be an online-only financial institution, one that does not have branches, that has diversified data centers, and... uh, You know, it could be Ally Bank, which is the one that people know the most from all their advertising and the size they represent. Uh, Those who are members of USAA have a USAA Federal Savings Bank account. Um, Any of the online onlys are a great choice because they don't have fees typically. And you've got a safe place that's portable to have access to your money from your phone, from their app, or on a computer. I also do have some savings at a credit union that has physical branches because I think that's important too, just to have somewhere you could go if you needed to, even if you just put some money in there. But and and speaking of money, the ATMs are down. Speaking of money, Ellen, and the ATMs being down, that would more likely be again because of a state actor who um, attacks the heart of the financial system. I have a supply of cash that is. Uh, stored in my home in a safe place. Don't worry. You want to come break into my home for it. It's not enough cash to break into my home for. Somebody mentioned before, why are you inviting people to come break into your home? It's $400. So it's not worth breaking into somebody's home and uh, going to prison for $400, is it? So um, having some cash available is a great idea if there was a serious attack on the financial system. Survivalists are all into having a supply of gold for this reason. But if we get into a situation where we're at barter or gold, man, that's a, that's a whole different conversation beyond where I, I don't like going to those really dark places. 
This is from Mike in Texas. I'm concerned about market volatility and I'm considering redirecting my $7,000 Roth IRA contribution for 2021 directly to my mortgage. I owe about $35,000 at a 3.75% rate. I do put 14% into my 401k, so I'm still investing, but it seems more to my advantage this year to pay down the mortgage debt in the face of unstable markets. I have until April 15th to make this decision. What do you think? So, Mike, uh, the markets have already had a meaningful decline. Parts of the market are already in what's known as a bear market, where they're down more than 20%. Overall, the marketplace, I guess, blended average maybe is around down 12%. So, values already have come down a decent amount. My attitude with a Roth IRA is that you do dollar cost averaging into it, where you're putting 500, typical person can put 6,000 in, unless you're 50 and over, you can do 7,000. So let's start with the 6,000. If you're doing maxing that out, you just do $500 a month, month after month after month. And what that means is if there is a month that share prices have gone down, whatever funds you're buying are cheaper, you're buying them basically on the clearance rack. And you're playing a long game here. I mean, you ask people who've been long time saving in a 401k, Roth IRA, traditional IRA, anything like that, who've been at it for decades. Um, how did you handle the decline of 2008? And they're like, huh, what was that decline? How much was it? They don't even remember anymore, where at the time it seemed earth shattering and was the end of investing as we knew it and then the market recovered eventually starting in 09 it hit its bottom and we had the greatest run-up just about that I can certainly in my lifetime so I think you just do slow and steady wins the race and do automatic monthly deposits rather than trying to time when the market's going to turn back up and be stable again uh, that would be true even if we had a significant, meaningful, catastrophic decline from here. You still have the same benefit with your Roth IRA moving forward because in a steep decline, you're buying shares cheaper each month because ultimately capitalism recovers and will grow your money. So I don't like trying to figure out I'm in, I'm out. Um, I know I'll get 3.75%, I think was the amount on the mortgage. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, uh, that's obviously a return. You're getting 3.75% paying against the mortgage. And if it helps you sleep better at night, putting the money there, go for it. But long term, you're better off not making a decision where, okay, so I'm going to put all the 6000 in at once and then see it decline. If you just do year after year your IRA contribution in monthly chunks, you lower the risk in the short term and you'll have a nice return over the long term. And I hope as we talk about the things that, uh, think about the body blows we've taken. The coronavirus that came out of nowhere and even though we knew it was a story in the world, in late 19, it wasn't a story in the U.S. 
and we didn't know the impact it was going to have on us. But it's been a really hard thing emotionally, mentally, psychologically, financially for so many people. And as that starts to become no longer a pandemic and this term that public health uses endemic, kind of like having a seasonal flu seems to be where we're moving. And it's like, oh, we can breathe a sigh of relief. Then war breaks out. And it's like, how many of these psychological blows can we take? And life has adversity. And we learn to adapt and we learn to overcome. And the temporary things going on right now, you need to think of them that way. If you have family in Ukraine, I I talked with a woman just a couple of days ago who is Ukrainian and almost all her family is in Ukraine. And the world of worry she feels about the safety and well-being of her family. I mean, we're talking about money here. That's nothing compared to people fearing for their health and their lives in the midst of war. But what happens is, is these events come out of nowhere, they really unsettle us. And it makes it harder for us to avoid the fight or flight kind of instinct. And with money, we tend to, at a time of uncertainty or anxiety, we make quick decisions. I want you to ride through this with me, and I will do the best I can to answer your questions and give guidance to know that in a time of uncertainty, you have to think about what is your goal, what's your time period, and how best to achieve those goals in a time of disruption and uncertainty. And I hope that I have helped you feel more comfortable about where we are and where we're going. And know that day in and day out, in adversity or not, small changes in how you handle money, small habits that you develop, create financial independence and security in you over time.